that those that have heard this before, you may want to go back over them. But those that have not heard a few previous series that I did, um, this is kind of part four, so to speak. There was a series I did called Going Deeper in Prayer. That would be number one. Then I followed that up with a series called The Priesthood of the Believer. And I dealt a lot with the tabernacle, a lot with the priesthood and the garments, things like that. And then after that series, I did a series last year um, called Communion Hebrew Roots, where we dealt real deep with the communion table and with the Hebrew roots of the faith. And then this is going to be kind of a part four of all of that. And this is going to deal a lot with spiritual maturity and that all of us coming to a place of great maturity and there's going to be different um, sections, if you will, through this series. I'll deal with the travels of David. I'm going to deal with prayer and eventually maybe the end times. I haven't decided if that will be part of this or if it'll be a new series later. But nonetheless, this is going to be um, thorough and it's going to be over a long period of time because it's going to deal with some very important things. So tonight, this is really just laying the groundwork. This is like an introduction, and hopefully you can see where I'm going, but I believe you'll get a lot out of tonight. All right, so in this sermon tonight, here's what this whole series is really going to be dealing with is Exodus 25 verse 8, which is about, I think, 14 words. That is one of my favorite verses in the Bible, and one of the most significant things, because the Bible, here's God, God Almighty, asking Moses, he's, well, he's commanding Moses, he's saying, have them build me a sanctuary that I might dwell among them. And that's such an awesome scripture, all of us should be so humbled by this, that God Almighty desires to dwell among us. It's very humbling. And so, in this, when you look at the words, um, let them build me a sanctuary, the word sanctuary in Hebrew is mikdash, and then that I might dwell, that's the word shekan, where we get shekinah from. So, here's what the picture is being painted. God's saying, if you will create a place for me, that I can put my presence the Shekinah, in Hebrew, the Shekinah, the Shekinah, that my glory will tabernacle there. My glory will dwell there among them, in their midst. And this, obviously, as we read this, we realize that what came out of this was the tabernacle of Moses and later became the temple. But I want to kind of show you maybe a mystery here, something that would be uh, metaphoric, symbolic. But among them, in the Hebrew, it's... um, and when you see those those first three letters, and I realize the B-E is like a, a beginning of a word, and I realize the word by itself is the, the Hebrew root tabak. I understand that. But metaphorically, symbolically speaking, when you see the B-E-T at the beginning of that, anybody that's familiar with Hebrew knows uh, the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet is bait, and it means house. And the words there among them, or midst, it comes from that root word tavak, which means mist. And I believe this, that God metaphorically was saying that not only is he wanting a tabernacle to dwell among all of Israel, but he was wanting us to make our lives, our house, our homes, to also be a little house 
where his, his presence would be in the midst of us also individually. Does that make sense? And so this is important to the Lord. And so in this series, I, well, at least in this sermon, I want to deal with a couple things. A lot of people don't know the difference. They've never been taught the difference between the anointing and the glory, and they've never been taught the difference between holy and righteous and things like that. And this is actually significant. So let me explain that for a moment as we go into this. The glory of the Lord is God's manifest presence. There's two words in Hebrew that describe the glory. We know the Shekinah, okay, comes from the root word Shekan, which means to dwell. And that glory was the glory that was in the tabernacle that where you saw a pillar of fire, you saw a cloud, you saw a manifest presence. And many people that have been in really powerful meetings you know, this happened at Azusa's, happened at Brownsville several times, but you'd see like a cloud, a mist, a, a, mist, a glory cloud. And that's the, the Shekinah, okay? The other word is Chavod, and that would be spelled K-A-V-O-D. And that word Chavod is, is like a weightiness, a heaviness of the glory. And many people have experienced that. You remember in the Bible you read about the priest could not stand to minister when the glory came in. So the glory of the Lord, many times when an angel appeared or, or somebody had an encounter with the Lord, the risen Christ, like John in the book of Revelation, they fell as one dead. They were, it's like the glory of God was so strong that they could not stand up. They couldn't function in the glory. The glory was like this thick, weighty presence. And that's the kavod glory. So those are the two words that describe the glory. And we know that the glory, like the Shekinah, there's a shining, a brightness. We know that in the beginning, if you can bear with me for a moment, it's a rabbit trust a little bit, but in the beginning, God said, let there be light. We know that. Later, the sun, moon, and stars were created. So this was not a physical, but this was a spiritual light. This was the glory. And the Bible says in Psalms, I, I don't remember the exact reference. I think it's 104, but you can look it up. It says that God wraps himself with light as a garment. So it's like God's talit, if you will, his prayer shot. He wraps himself with light like a garment. And we know that he created Adam and Eve in the garden, and he created them in his image and likeness. His image has to do with their inner spirit. The likeness is the soul. And he wrapped them, you know, in a clay uh, flesh body but being that they were created in the image and likeness of god we know that there was some kind of a wrapping of the glory of the lord upon them that even though they were naked it was interesting because if you do a hebrew study of genesis 1 2 and 3 that the first time the bible says they were naked and they they didn't know it they didn't have any shame about it it's the word arom in hebrew it's a different word than later arom a-r-o-m and it actually means partially nude. Now, I believe physically speaking, they did not have physical clothes on. But I do believe that as God wraps himself with light as a garment, that when he created Adam and Eve, there was some kind of a wrapping of that chavod, a weightiness that wrapped them. Uh, and it was a light garment, if you will. And then when they sinned, was the Bible say, all have sinned and fall short of the glory. And so after they ate of this, the apple, they sinned, or whatever it was that they ate, the fruit, and they sinned, that the glory of God lifted off them. I believe that, because after they sinned, the Bible says they were naked and they knew it. Something happened. 
They were, they were supposedly naked before, right? But I believe that the glory of the Lord that was on them and wrapped them, they felt that security blanket. They felt continually in that glory, in the presence of God. And even though God would come down and walk with them in the cool of the day, and people have speculated, theologians have said, well, you know, is that the morning or is that the evening time, the cool of the day? There again, you have the morning and evening sacrifice. You have a pattern. But nonetheless, God would walk with them. But even when God was not walking with them in the cool of the day, they still sensed that weight of the glory wrapping them. But when they sinned, that left. And they were afraid. Wouldn't you be if you'd never felt that before? All of a sudden, you feel distant from God. And they got scared. They knew that they blew it. You know, they went, they ran, and they hid. And they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. And then after that, the Bible says that God wrapped them in some kind of an animal skin. So this was the glory of God being removed. And it was really sad because God obviously never intended for that. Now, Jesus comes on the scene. And Jesus is perfect. He's, our, he's the perfect Lamb of God. He takes away the sins of the world. We know all of that. But here he was as being perfect. He had to die. And all of God's wrath and anger and judgment and all the justice that we all deserved went on him on the cross. But here's a man who is perfect, who knew no sin, who was 100% man, but was also 100% God at the same time that was there with his arms stretched out and he's having to die naked because that's what Roman crucifixions were like and he was dying nude and blood was coming out of his body and dripping on the ground. Why? Well, there's many things that happened at Calvary but I would say one of the reasons is is because Jesus died naked because in the garden the glory lifted and he was paying that now the glory of God can come back to God's people. And through his blood, we don't have to sense such a distance anymore. The blood of the Lamb gives us access into the glory. Let me read to you a scripture that I don't have in there, but you may want to use in this. And you may want to take a few notes. This is kind of deep, but I believe it will be a real blessing to you in the long run. I'm going to take my time with this series. I'm going to try to condense each sermon to where I don't do too much at one time. But Hebrews 10:19, I love this scripture, through 22. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Now, this is actually referring to the Holy of Holies. And we know the outer court was lit by natural sunlight. That's where a lot of Christians dwell. But as you went into the holy place, it was lit by the menorah, the lampstands, which was the fire was burning from the fuel of olive oil. This represented the Holy Spirit bringing light, revelation, and truth. But as you went beyond the second veil into the Holy of Holies, the only thing that lit that was the glory of the Lord. And when Jesus appeared to John, what does it say? His face shone like the sun. So there's a shining. So anyway, um, it says you can enter the most holy place. This is the Holy of Holies, verse 2, Hebrews 10, now verse uh, 20. By a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. So his flesh being ripped open now paid for the veil to be ripped open. So that we can have a way in to the glory. Verse 21, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. 
Let us draw near with a sincere heart full of assurance and faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. It's interesting that recently God had led us to have a time of prayer and fasting. And coming out of that time, we had a, a, a deep consecration service. We really took the Lord's Supper together. We, we brought our lives deeply under the blood. It was a really powerful night. My wife and I went through and anointed every person with oil. We prayed the power of God hit you. I felt the power of God hit each person. And it was strong, but that was the ministry of the Holy Spirit consecrating people. And then we, we went, and those that wanted to come and get baptized, and everybody pretty much, I think everybody did, but we water immersed people. The glory of the Lord was so strong in that water. But as people, they're being washed with the water. And you know what? God is taking us now. Even tonight, you can sense it. God has been deepening. We're going deeper into the Holy of Holies as a ministry. But Christ has inaugurated a new and living way, a new covenant through his blood. The veil has been ripped. Is this not exciting? That God desires to be with us. Build me a place that I can dwell among you. Make me a sanctuary, a mikdash, that I can come and dwell there. And so that's the glory. The difference between the glory and the anointing is like, for example, Acts 10.38, how God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went around doing good, healing all oppressed of the devil. So we know that the glory is the, the manifest presence of God, the weighty presence of God. But the anointing is a clothing of power, if you will. To anoint means to rub in. The Spirit of God will come in and upon us, and God's holy oil of the Spirit will begin to rub down into us. God will change you from the inside out. See, religion, this is important to know, religion tries to change people from the outside in. But God always changes people from the inside out. He gives you a new heart, new desires. So that oil will rub down in. He'll change you. But that Holy Spirit of God, he will fill us and he will empower us. He will clothe us with power to do the things that Jesus did on the earth. That's why Mark, Jesus said, go out, preach the gospel. He said, these signs will follow them that believe in my name. You'll drive out demons. How many times have I driven out demons myself? And some of you have. You rebuke and drive them out in the name of Jesus. That's the, it takes the power of God to do that. And, and how many times have we laid hands on the sick and they'll recover? We've prayed for so many sick people that have been healed. But it takes the power of the Holy Spirit. It is not a work of humanity. It's not us doing this per se. It's the Spirit of God doing it. Okay, We just lay our hands and pray. It's our job to pray. But the Spirit of God, His power, His dunamis power in the Greek, dunamis, where we get the word dynamite, explosive power, His power will surge through and drive out the demonic, and will bring healing to the sick. And it goes on to saying, you'll speak in new tongues. What a sign and a wonder. Now, Satan hates these things, and he tries to get the world to believe that every time there's some kind of healing or a healing minister, that it's all fake, and they're all charlatans. And if people are getting delivered to demons, that it's just a bunch of crazy nonsense, like in a psychiatric hospital. And if you speak in new tongues, it's some kind of crazy 
stuff. And even religious people, even people that go to church out there, believe, believe it or not, they believe this. That's how much of the influence the demonic has been able to penetrate in their mind. But they believe that it's a bunch of nonsense. But how many knows that it is the power of God? It is the power of God. And that's the anointing. That we, God anoints us to do what Jesus did in the earth. The very first sermon Jesus preached coming out of, you know, he was water baptized and the Holy Spirit came upon him. I believe in bodily form wasn't necessarily a bird. This is just my opinion. But like a dove will rest gently. Doves are gentle. And like a dove will gently light upon somebody. The Holy Spirit came in bodily form. But he settled gently on Jesus like a dove would and, and clothed him with power. And Jesus, when he came up out of that water, I can't get into all this, but now the priesthood was passing from John, who was a descendant of Aaron, was passing. And Jesus was now beginning his priestly ministry, clothed with the power of the Spirit of God, went out, was tested by the devil. But when he came back, the very first thing Jesus did was stand up in synagogue and, and he had... The scroll of Isaiah given unto him. This was called the Haftarah time. He was reading from that. And he read the part where it says that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. For he's anointed me. To preach good news to the poor. To bind up and heal the brokenhearted. Set free those that are bound. And he said today this is fulfilled in your hearing. So he was saying I'm, an, I'm the anointed one. That will deliver the captives. That will set those free in darkness. That will heal the sick. I'm the anointed one to do it. That's what Jesus was saying. But now, on the other side of the cross, Jesus said to the disciples, wait in Jerusalem till you're clothed with power. In other words, now we are supposed to be doing what we saw our Lord doing. That's the anointing. So the difference between the glory and the anointing, the glory is the presence, the anointing is an empowerment. Now the difference between the holy and the righteous, because a lot of people don't know this. I didn't know this for years either because I've always heard it just synonymous. But in the Bible, the word holy means to be set apart. This is really important that you know this. Because it's going to have a lot to do with this mikdash tonight that we're going to talk about. But to be set apart. Righteous has to do with being clean. Now, I'll get to that in a moment. But see, under Old Testament law, for example, the first animal that was born to an animal, the firstborn, this was a first fruits offering, if you will, and it was to be set apart unto God. The other farm animals could have a yoke put on them, could do the things that animals were supposed to do, but that firstborn animal was a first fruits offering unto God, and it was set apart as holy. It had to be removed from the rest of the animals and set apart because it had to be taken to the temple to be sacrificed. You see what I'm saying? It was set apart. It was different. It was unique from everything else. In the same way, there's a lot of places out here tonight, a lot of buildings, a lot of houses. But this building here has been set apart unto God. It's different. It's unique from everything else around it. And that's set apart. A person, a place, a thing can be set apart unto God. And that's what it means to be holy. Now righteous has to do with cleansing. So we know when a person is set apart unto God, that maybe they're going to be set apart to be in the ministry, that God will begin a deep consecration in their life and he'll 
purge them through the power of the blood of Jesus, through the power of the waters of immersion, through the power of being anointed with oil, through the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Even, I believe, the ministry of holy angels too, but God deeply consecrates a person. And now, the things that before Christ, the things that we would do now after we've become a Christian or we're set apart unto God, we no longer do those things. Like, for example, before, you know, we were saved or whatever, we would go out, maybe, you know, sexual immorality. We were putting substances in our bodies that were defiling our temple. Uh, we were participating in evil things. But now we no longer do those things. And so we're living righteously. So you no longer do the things you used to do, but also now you're doing different things. Now you're going to church. Now you're, you're giving. Now you're witnessing. Now you're, you have a prayer life. Now you know, you're in the Word. You're doing things that you didn't do before. This has to do with righteousness. But God cleans us up. The sanctifying work of God in our lives. So once you're set apart as a Christian, but also as people are set apart in the ministry, this is going to be intensified. God really expects leaders to go through this process of being cleansed. Is this making sense? So once you're set apart, once a person, place, or thing is set apart, God expects it to be treated different than everything else. I won't just let anything go on in here. I'll, if something's not right, I'll call it down because this is a holy place, and I respect that. And once something is set apart unto God as holy, now you, cleanse, you spiritually cleanse it by the power of the blood, by the power of the anointing with oil, and you, you cleanse it from any uh, spiritual pollution that was here. And you know what? God, you're creating a sanctuary for God to come dwell there. And God's glory will come and abide, the Shekinah glory, and God will be there. But God is wanting us to really be careful because once a person, place, or thing is set apart unto God as holy, God expects it to be treated different. And that's why this is in Corinthians. I do not have the reference in front of me, but you can look this up. The Apostle Paul was referring to us being the temple of the Holy Spirit. But he said, if we defile the temple, God will destroy that temple. That's why sometimes you, you hear about somebody that was maybe a really anointed individual. They, they were really used of God, but then they got deeply involved in sin. And next thing you know, they have some kind of disease like cancer and they die. And it was because they, did not, they defiled their temple, basically. You've got to be careful. Once you are set apart unto God, you've got to be careful to not defile yourself because it can really bring a judgment. And you've got to be careful to not mix the holy and the profane. Let me tell you, if you were to come in here and set this place apart like this, like we've done, and the glory of God comes in this place, and then you were to have youth meetings where people were sitting around playing like Ouija boards or something and getting involved in witchcraft and doing different things like that, and you brought that into a holy place where God's glory dwell, you're, you're creating an environment that is going to bring judgment. You see what I'm saying? 
Whereas if it was another place where God did not dwell, it was not a holy place, it had nothing to do with God whatsoever, and they were doing that, they would open themselves up to the demonic because of what they're doing, but it would not bring like a judgment from God. Once something is set apart to God, you've got to cherish that, you've got to respect that. How many knows that God wants us to respect what he respects? And I have a holy reverence when I come here to this place that I understand that this is a holy place and this place has been deeply cleansed and therefore the glory of God is here and because the glory of God is here, I respect this. That's why God told Moses, he said, take off your sandals, you're on holy ground. God wanted Moses to really have a respect for his presence and where he was, that it was hallowed to it's something that we need to have a reverence for. And it grieves me nowadays because I see a lot of things going on in places that I question um, if it really pleases the Lord or does it grieve him. So Isaiah 4.4, 4, when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, a cleansing, a deep consecration, and purged the bloodshed from Jerusalem from her midst, by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion, over her assemblies, a cloud by day, even smoke, the brightness of a flaming fire by night, and over all the glory will be a canopy. There will be a shelter to give shade from the heat of the day and a refuge and protection from the storm and rain. So God is saying that there's a cleansing, but once the cleansing is done, the glory will come and the glory will be a shelter. I believe in these latter days we're going to need the glory of the Lord in our midst. But what has concerned me, I spoke about this last week. I had a prophetic word for the church. Went, in, went into a lot of detail with that. It was a very important sermon. Um, anyway, in that, there was a lady years ago that used to come here. She moved, and she used to get prophetic revelation from the Lord. It was really, she was a really powerful woman of God. And she had a dream or a vision, I don't remember, but she said in this, I believe it was a dream, she said that the place where we were, that there was, there was such a presence of God there. I mean, it was so strong. And she said that Jesus was actually walking in the room, but he was like a few inches off the actual physical ground. But he was walking amongst the room. And the glory of the Lord was so strong. And she said that, Somebody had told me in the dream as the pastor had told me, you know, there was actually somebody, though, that got sick and died in there. And then in the dream, I told her, I said, it's because they didn't take God serious and they were playing around. Now, I'm going to tell you that all of us want the glory of the Lord and all of us want to go deeper into the Holy of Holies and all of us want to encounter him. But we need to be careful to reverence him also. He is a holy God. Amen? And remember Ananias and Sapphira in the midst of revival. So in these latter days, we're going to need a refuge. We're going to need the Lord's glory. The glory of the Lord is in my home because I want the glory in my home. And I pray about that every day. And the glory of the Lord is there. The glory of the Lord is here in the church. And that's the way I want it to be. And I protect that glory. And that means in, that I love God and I love his presence. 
Now, hear what I'm saying. I mean this, but I, I mean it in the right way. I love God and I love his presence more than I love people. That doesn't mean I don't love people, because I do. But I love the Lord more than I love other people. And I love his presence more than I love everybody liking me. So what I mean by that is, I don't bat an eye if people are doing something that's going to grieve God to the point that his glory would leave. I'll deal with it. I will deal with it because I don't want the glory to live. And the Holy Spirit is like a dove, and a dove is quick to leave. And we don't want the dove to leave. We want the glory to abide. And so we've got to be willing to deal with things. So sanctuary in the Webster's Dictionary is a place of refuge and safety. Have you ever thought about that? It's a place of refuge and safety. The biblical definition would be a dwelling place for God's presence, peace, and provision. Now, let me say something also that's interesting. You know, many, many people, you know, are familiar with the mezuzah and, you know, it's put on homes. But have you ever noticed on the mezuzah it has that, what looks like an English W, but it's actually the letter Shin in the Hebrew alphabet, which is an SH. And so the reason why it's on there, and sometimes it'll, it'll spell the whole word Shaddai, but it, it represents Shaddai, El Shaddai. God's name, he has many names that is revealed in Scripture, but one of God's names is El Shaddai. Now, this is interesting. The word, the, the latter part of that, the D-A-I, the die, that is enough. That's why you guys remember we just had a Passover meal recently, so you should be familiar with this. But remember we had the Dianu, and we were saying it would be enough. Well, Dianu means enough for us. So God being El Shaddai he is the God of more than enough. Isn't that awesome? So I said that because it's interesting that that is what is on a lot of mezuzah that are put on houses. And even to this day, among Jewish circles where there's a blessing that's spoken, and a priest will speak a blessing, he'll put his hands like this, and, and it's representing the, the SH, the Shin. Okay? And he'll sing the blessing, the Lord bless and keep you, make his face shine upon you, be gracious unto you, lift up his countenance upon you, give you his peace. He'll sing that and speak that over the people. And I got to looking at that, and I believe it's connected in many ways to the mikdash, the um, sanctuary of God's presence, because we're El Shaddai, the God of more than enough, and there's that blessing of God there, where the blessing of God is spoken, where the presence of God dwells, El Shaddai, think about the other words that begin with the S-H, Shalom, the peace of God, the wholeness. And you have Sha'alu, which means prosperity. And you have the Shekinah, the Shekinah, which is the abiding presence. See, where there is a mikdash, where there is a sanctuary for God, and his glory dwells, just like the mezuzos that are hung up, it's a place. That's what I'm trying to get at. A mezuzah represents a set-apart place. Are you following this line of thinking? Where there's a set-apart holy place, where the presence of God dwells, that is where El Shaddai, the God of more than enough, that is where his Shekinah presence that is where his shalom peace and that is where his sha'alu prosperity will abide is a place where his glory dwells. How many remember the story that even though Obed-Edom 
was a Hittite. Even though he was a Gentile, Obed-Edom, the glory of the Lord, the ark was placed in his house for a time. And the Bible says everything about his house prospered. Where the glory of the Lord is, there's going to be a supernatural protection. There is going to be health and healing. There's going to be uh, prosperity. And there's going to be peace. Because El Shaddai, the God of more than enough, will release that in his presence. And even under the Old Testament, the Jewish people understood the God uh, of, that, that placed his cloud there at the tabernacle on his fire that his presence, that shaking up presence was among the people. And when God's presence was among the people, it was like bringing them under the tallit of his wings, under his presence. And, and you know what? They understood that that was the source of being protected in victory over their enemies, protected from the evil that would try to come against them. It was a prosperity in their midst. It was health and healing. You hear what I'm saying? They understood that it was in the glory that this is where this came from, God dwelling among them. And if God was to lift and go, that a lot of that would be pulled back away from them. Here's the last couple things I want to cover tonight. The word mikdash in Hebrew, I put the Hebrew script there. There's four letters. It's from the root kodesh, where we get, you know, kadosh, the holy so Mikdash is actually connected to the word holy. God is wanting a holy dwelling, a place set apart unto him. He's wanting us to be a set apart people. God wants to be able to look at me and look at you and see that we are truly salt and light in this world and we are set apart unto him and we are different than the world. And he wants to see that his place of worship, churches, are very different than the world. They're set apart into him. And that's what I believe God is looking for. Now I'm going to give you something a little deep. But as you break down the word mikdash in Hebrew, there's four letters that make it up. Number one, the letter is the maim, which is the M. That letter in Hebrew speaks of choppy waters. If you look at the, the Hebrew letter maim and you study it, it's the 13th letter. 13 represents rebellion, and the numeric value is 40, and 40 is testing. How many knows whenever there's rebellion, there's also going to have to be testing to get the rebellion out? But the little pictograph, because there's a picture for every letter, is choppy waters. And when people are living in rebellion, their life is going to be like choppy waters. It's going to be like you're on a boat, but there's always a storm. Amen? And these are the storms. But also what's interesting about the maim though is this. A lot of people associate with the word mikveh. And when Jesus died and raised, he's wanting us to also experience a death and resurrection in him. A lot of people have never studied this out, but there's actually four sides of the bronze altar. Four sides. There's four revelations of what Jesus did. Number one is, so that our sins can be forgiven. Everybody understands that that's a Christian. That's the pardoning of your sin. But what about the aspect of it being taken completely away? A lot of people out there have never had the power of sin totally broken off their life. 
But John said about Jesus, here's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin. God is wanting not only to pardon you, but he's wanting to literally pull that stuff completely out of your life. It's like digging down into you and pulling out by the roots. So one side of the bronze altar is forgiveness. The next side is being set free from it. But here's the third side. God is wanting us to put off the old man. That we are crucified with Christ. It's not all, no longer us who live, but Christ living through us. Where it's a life of, of, of getting the old out. Where God begins the, the, everything becomes new. You're a new creation. The old passes away. Where God is now changing who we are as a person. And so all that old pollution is pulled out and, and our bad, you know, bad attitudes, the way we think, the way our old philo- philosophical views of life and things that are unbiblical. Now it's like all that old stuff seems to just be pulled out of us and now there's this new emerging person in Christ. But you know what the fourth side is? Uh, the fourth side is I willingly laid my life down on the altar as a living sacrifice. That God now, that we have a, a humble attitude of we want to be your humble servants, that we lay our lives down, wholly accept on you, that you come live through us, and we want to serve your kingdom and be fruitful for you. We have a, a willing life that's laid down on the altar. Does this make sense? Those are the four revelations that are significant in the bronze altar. And so what I'm saying is the first letter, of Mame is God is wanting us to have a death of the old and a coming into that resurrection life in Christ, that life of victory and freedom from what was, and now we're a new creation. I can tell you, just from knowing my wife, that before she was a Christian, and then today, she is a completely different human being. People would not recognize her in any respect. I mean, she even looks different, but she's a totally, completely different person. And that's what God is saying, that maim is that all the rebellion is removed. God allows the storms. He allows the things that need to come so that we can deal with things that aren't right. But he wants us to lay down our lives on that bronze altar and really let God do a deep work in us. The next is the kuf, which is where you get the K sound, the meek dash. The letter Kuf is the, the first letter in Kadosh, which means holy. Anytime you see that letter Kuf, it always reminds me of something holy. Because even in the tabernacle or the temple, whatever, there, there was things that were set apart unto God. And it was respected as such. The priestly garments were for priestly ministry. You wouldn't see a priest wearing them home and flipping burgers in his backyard. Joking around, right? Because this was something that was unto the Lord. It was set apart. It was different. And so when things were for the temple, you had oil in vessels that was specially pressed for the temple. They'd be marked with that kuf on there. And it looks like a pea. And it was set apart. It was something that was different. And God is wanting every one of us in River of Life in these latter days to really let him do a work in us of a set-apart life. Now, let me explain what that means because some people, 
I'm going to try to do my best with this. But some people don't understand the difference between following a set of religious rules and then getting to know the Holy Spirit. All right, I'm going to give this story again. I gave this on Tuesday, so bear with me, those that were here. But, you know, it bears repeating. Now, let me give you a story to illustrate this. Either as Christians, either we're going to have just a set of religious rules that we follow, which that has its place. It has its place. Or we're going to learn to grow up and be mature and begin to come out of an infancy stage into a mature place where we are led continually by the Holy Spirit. And let me explain the difference. Let's say that you were going to go on a dangerous journey. You were going into a jungle and you knew that there was a lot of traps. You knew there was a lot of pitfalls. There was a lot of different places that if you got off, it could actually be dangerous. And so you were at this place where they asked you, before you go, you can either have a map, and it's a good map. It's a detailed map. In fact, it's perfect. Or you can have a guide. The guide knows every square inch. Which one do you want? And so you say, well, you know, I'll just take the map. I got a compass. It's all fine. So you get out there, and you got your map. And you're going along, and all of a sudden, though, it gets dark, and storms start coming. Things don't look the same to you because of the winds and the storm and all that's going on. You're starting to get nervous. You're even maybe coming upon a cliff, and you're looking at some rocky terrain, and now you're getting scared. You say, I really don't know what to do next. I wish I would have got the guide. And to your surprise, you look to the left, and there's a guide. And he says, you want me to help you? And he says, yeah, I do. And so he helps you get exactly where you need to be. You get there. And then the guide says, do you want me to continue with you? And you say, no, no, I got this. So you got your little map. You got your compass. Here you go. You're going again. Pretty soon, same scenario happens. The guide shows up again to bail you out. I think you get the idea. But the map is God's word. We need the word. We need the word. But the guide is the Holy Spirit who wrote the word. You know what I'm saying? The Holy Spirit knows the word because he wrote the word. And the Holy Spirit knows every inch of your life, everything about you, all your weaknesses, and all your pluses. He knows everything about you. We need to know the word. We need to reverence the word. And we need to have the word in us. We need to be memorizing parts of it. We need to love the word of God. I read the word every single day day i try to every day i study the word continually but to be brought to maturity in christianity is not about following a bunch of rules it's actually that you know the word but you're following your guide jesus said it's better for you that i go away because i will send the comforter the greek can say counselor and he will lead you into all truth And so the Holy Spirit, as you come to maturity, you're no longer having to depend on just these do's and don'ts per se. They have their place. But you don't depend on that because you already know the word for yourself, but you're following the Holy Spirit. And you know what? You're at so much peace, though, because even though you know the word and you're trying to live um, obedient to the word of God, You trust the Holy Spirit through your life. You have such a relationship with him now that if something is off, he's going to convict you. 
If your foot is going to start going to the right and it's not supposed to, he's going to nudge you. And there's such a peace in that because you don't have to be afraid about anything anymore because you know that the Holy Spirit is in complete charge. He knows what's going to happen tomorrow anyway. And whatever you need as the guide, he's going to perfectly guide you. That's why the Bible says when we start coming into sonship, into maturity, that we learn to continually be led by the Holy Spirit. So for us to have that type of relationship with the Holy Spirit, though, we have to be willing to lay our lives down and say, Holy Spirit, get out of us everything that grieves you, everything that displeases you, because the Holy Spirit of God settled upon Jesus. But Jesus, when he was baptized, John said, as I've already said a couple times, behold, the Lamb of God. The Lamb was immersed in water, and then the dove, if you will, settled on the lamb. I'm going to tell you something. The dove will settle on the nature of the lamb. Where the Holy Spirit sees the nature of the lamb of God, sees Jesus, where he sees that nature, that's where the Holy Spirit will come and dwell and abide. But where there's going to be a bunch of gossip, there's going to be a bunch of bitterness, there's going to be a bunch of foul language, there's going to be a bunch of fighting, there's going to be things that are not the nature of the lamb, the dove will fly. And so we have to submit to the maim, if you will, of the choppy waters where God allows storms to change us, but then the kuf where we begin to say, Holy Spirit, show us everything that we need. Get all out of us. Anything we, Any person we need to forgive, anything we need to repent, anything that you need to deal with, please do it. Because as he changes us, and we become more like the Lord, and we have more of the nature of the Lamb, that's where the dove will settle and abide. The Holy Spirit never left Jesus. And I'm not saying the Spirit of God would leave people in an inward sense as, as a Christian, but I'm saying that tabernacling glory of God in your life and in your home, yes, He will, if there's sin. That glory will lift. All right. And that leads to the third letter, the dilet, which is a D. This is a door coming into the holy place. The door coming into the holy place. Now I need to start closing this down, but as you begin to learn how to get into the deep places of prayer and God begin to draw you into him, can you imagine what it would have been like back in the Old Testament times to be a priest and who you are, all you've known maybe is the outer court and the, the outside sunlight and the, the dead animals and all this. All of a sudden now, you're able to go beyond that into the holy place. And in the holy place, there's a beautiful fragrance of incense and there's the, the table of showbread and the menorah's lit and the presence of God is, is, is there. And, and it's a totally different realm. And once we deal with... The God letting us be set apart now we can begin to go into a place of deep fellowship with him we have not known before and that leads me to the point I've really already talked about the the shin that's on the mezuzos that are over houses that where God El Shaddai dwells where his Shekinah is there will also be his peace his prosperity his his abiding presence his more than enough all of that will be there because his presence is there. But what I'm trying to get at is, God wants to dwell among us. But we've got to be willing to let him deal with things. And so many Christians have never got to know the Holy Spirit at all. They'll say they do, but they don't know him. And because of that, 
It's just about you can do this, you can't do that. You need to do this, you don't need to do that. That's all that it really is to them. That has its place. But if you're walking in a relationship with the guide, he will help take care of that when it comes up. You need to draw into the relationship. That's the difference between religion and relationship. And I believe everybody goes through that process as an infant in Christ where you do need the do's and don'ts. You need a really good, healthy dose of a holy fear of God. You need to be matured. You need to be disciplined. You need to go through the things. That's a process, and it's important. But there comes a point in time when you mature in your relationship with the Lord, and your love for the Lord is there to where you don't want to do things anymore because you don't want to hurt Him. You don't want to hurt your relationship with Him. And besides that, God has done such a work in you that you don't even really want the old sinful things that you used to want anyway. How many can say that they don't? Because I don't anymore. And I know you feel the same way. God takes this. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. All that junk that I used to want so much. It's like all those desires change. He takes it out of you. All right, here's the last couple things. So the word Bethel. Beit El. Remember I said Beit is house. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Beit Lechem. House of bread. Beit is house and El is God. And so the very name Bethel. Do you remember the story when Jacob. Jacob was, was going toward Laban's house. And Jacob ended up in a place. That he named it Bethel. But the reason why is because his, his grandfather Abraham had built an altar to God there and it had sacrificed to God and prayed. When Abraham did that, when the blood was applied and there was worship and prayer, it created something in the heavens, some kind of an opening, an open heaven, a portal. And Jacob stumbles upon this place. And it just so happens this is the place now that he's going to go to sleep that night. So he puts a rock for a pillow. It's a real manly man. And he sleeps, you know. And during the night, how many knows if you're sleeping with a rock as a pillow, you're going to dream dreams, right? Amen. And so anyway, he had this dream in the middle of the night. And he saw this ladder and angels ascending and descending on the ladder. And he realized, I've stumbled upon something. There, this, he said, this is nothing less than the very dwelling, the very house of God. And so he named the place Bethel, house of God. And what I'm trying to get at is, is that a man of God had come into that place before and spiritually changed the atmosphere. An anointed man of God can come in and set apart a place and shift the atmosphere to where the heavens will open. What God is wanting from us is he's wanting us to set apart a place for him, River of Life, where his glory can dwell. And as we have persistent, heartfelt worship and prayer and fasting and intercession, and we make it a, a hallowed place where God is reverenced, that the heavens are open. There's angels ascending and descending. It's a holy place. 
where now the glory of God is awesome and people can receive there miracles, breakthroughs, deliverances. Marriages can be healed. Hardened sinners can be brought into that atmosphere and convicted. I remember this, this man tell me one time, there was a particular, I'll never forget this because it's so unique, but this was a real man of God. And he was a missionary that lived on the Mexican border. I was down there on a missions trip with a handful of people. I was probably in my late 20s. Anyway, we were there just helping. And he was, he was really a true man of God, a powerful man of God. And he was telling me all these revival stories of times past and things they had seen. And it just, you know, it makes your heart burn when you hear these people talking about but he was telling me as we was walking along, he said, he said, I'm going to show you something. He said, go in this room. And I went in this room, and I don't know why, but I mean to tell you, it was strange because you're walking outside in the heat of right there in the Mexican border, you know, humidity. There's nothing spiritual going on. Friend. I mean, you don't feel spiritual at all. But you walk into this room, and all of a sudden, the, the glory of God is so strong that you're just kind of just stopping dead in your tracks going, man, what did I just walk into and he told me, he said, ma'am, he said, we had this revival. And God really moved here. And all these people came and got saved. And it was awesome what God did. And he said, for whatever reason, God deposited his presence in this room. It's always there. He said, you can go in there anytime. The presence of God is there. And he said, I have sometimes these missionaries come that, that are like from a church. And they'll bring some of their youth. And, and that's. You know, that's good, and sometimes you get kids that are not really very spiritual that come, right? Well, he had this young lady there that was kind of rebellious, kind of had a bad attitude and all this stuff. And so he's walking along with all of them, and he tells that little girl that's got bad attitude, he said, hey, why don't you go in that room there? Why don't you go in there and stay for a few minutes? And um, she went in there, and, and then, of course, a little while later, they opened the door, and she's in there crying. You see... God wants a place where he can put his presence to where people can really have an encounter with him. But God also wants to be able to trust us that we're going to reverence what's holy. You hear what I'm saying? We're not just going to let just anything go on. I love everybody. I'm not mad at anybody. But I'm not going to let some counterfeit, strange, weird spirit in here. I'm not going to let things that are occult. I'm not, I'm not going to let things that are sexually immoral. I'm not going to let things come in here that grieve the Holy Spirit, that are sin and wrong. If people are not going to repent, then you have to confront deal with it. If you're unwilling to do that, you, God will not cause an abiding presence here. You have to be willing to deal with things. So what God wants to be set, have a set-apart place in our lives Number two, to be purified. And number three, to be a place of the incense. In Hebrew, it's called the keteret, the incense. But he wants there to be that continual worship and prayer coming up. And finally, what is this? Who I close with, excuse me, the, what is the greatest enemy of the mikdash, the sanctuary where God's presence dwells? What's the greatest enemy? A religious spirit. A, a religious spirit will stir up division. Once you start having a place where God is dwelling, that is a major threat to the devil. Do you understand that Satan considers the earth his temporary territory, if you will, you know, until Jesus comes back? And you start setting up places that's got an open heaven, angels are ascending and descending, 
the manifest glory of God is abiding there continually. That is a threat to the enemy. And all of a sudden, you start seeing things come up. Satan starts using people to stir up division. All of a sudden, that people get mad at the pastor about nothing. You're thinking, what in the world? People, people start fighting with one another. It's, it's a demonic thing, and it's a religious spirit, sometimes over doctrinal issues, you know, like religious spirit. And it's like this division to stir up, and, and Satan's trying to bring division because he knows the kingdom divided can't stand. And as people start fighting, and people start rebelling, and they start grieving the Holy Spirit, the devil knows that if they don't stop that, the glory will lift. Pretty soon, Satan's trying to stir up all kinds of distractions where the pastor's had to run over here and put out this fire just for three more to break out over there. He's running over there to put out those fires for five more to break out over there. Major distractions. The religious spirit will try to bring in man's control. This is a big one. Where people feel like, okay, we need to do this for five minutes. Then we need to do this for 15 minutes. Then we're going to do this. And they want to orchestrate every little detail. And and they don't want the Holy Spirit to have any liberty or freedom. And they want to structure it to where man is 100% in control of every little thing that takes place. That's man's control. It's religion. And it will bring a wet blanket, put out the fire, and the glory will lift. Just remember that right in the middle, I'll, I'll never, this blows me away, but Moses and, you know, the children of Israel come to Sinai. Moses tells them, listen, for three days, you guys, you, you know, wash in water, wash your clothes. You need to abstain from anything that you shouldn't be doing. God's about to show up. You get your house in order. And so everybody's dealing with stuff. They all come to the foot of the mountain. God comes down. I mean, they see this. There's a, a fire, that there's an earthquake, there's a loud sound of a shofar. Man, the top of the mountain looks like it's on fire. There's a, there's a cloud of the glory. The people are afraid. I mean, they're seeing God come down in front of them. And they're saying, Moses, why don't you go talk to him and just, you know, make sure things are okay. We don't want him mad at us. Just you go talk to him and let us know what he wants us to do. They were afraid. So Moses, make a long story short, he, you know, they, they have sacrifices. He sprinkles the blood over the people. The Moses, Aaron, Joshua, the 70 elders, they're able to go up the mountain part of the way. And the Bible says, this is in the Bible, look it up if you, if you didn't know this, that those men saw God and lived, and they ate and drank in the presence of the Lord. I believe they probably saw pre-incarnate Christ. And... They had this encounter. Now these 70 elders and all these others, Joshua, Aaron, all them go down. You know they're going through the camp. We saw God, man. You know, and they're telling everybody about it. We ate and drank in, in the presence of God, and we saw these colors. We saw sapphire. And they just, the, the children of Israel are still seeing the fire up there and everything. And Moses goes back up and says, I got to go finish getting what I need to get. Aaron's in charge. So he goes back up. He's up there meeting with God. And it wasn't very long until the children of Israel are like, 
As for this Moses fellow, <laughs> we don't know what's become of him. You know, and they're like, Aaron, you need to make us a God that we can worship. And they all give Aaron their you know, gold, and he makes this, you know it was the ugliest cow you've ever seen, right? But he makes this cow, he's trying to do his best. And pretty soon they're all dancing the way that they learned in Egypt. They're dancing around a golden calf, worshiping that. How can that happen when you just had such a powerful encounter with God? So what I'm trying to say is, is that God is wanting river of life. I feel this with everything in me. He's been speaking to us. He's wanting this to be a mikdash, a sanctuary where he's going to dwell in an incredible way like we have not known before. It's going to be very deep. But he's wanting us to be faithful stewards with it. And we need to be careful when we come into God's presence like that, that it's just simply a reverence. We need to be honoring of his presence. And also that we have to cherish what's going on and we need to be careful that we don't allow things to start creeping in that would grieve the Holy Spirit. Amen.